The Marching Roundtable is an official media partner of Drum Corps International. This podcast is sponsored by Blue House Mallets, found at MalletBuilder.com. This is Tim Hinton with another great conversation recorded live at the Arcadia Music and Arts Symposium in Arcadia, California. On this podcast, I was really starstruck sitting around the table with this group of amazing composers and arrangers. Listen to this list. Jim Casella, Matt Jordan, Kevin Shaw, Brian Dinkle, and Sean Vega. They share great practical advice about composing and arranging for the front ensemble. Just like front ensemble arrangers have to have a clear vision of what the rest of the ensemble is doing, I think the battery arrangers need to do that same thing. Um, one of the things I see yet from younger battery arrangers is kind of not paying attention to what the big picture is, um, whether it be the full picture musically with the full band or core, um, or what the front ensemble is going to be doing. If, for example, battery ranger writes first, um, sometimes can kind of uh, step on toes that aren't even there yet um, of, of the front ensemble, because you really have to have a vision of, um, you know, where if it's going to be big impacts, for example, in the front ensemble, where are those impacts going to be? If you want to have little accents patterns with your splash symbols, you know, accessory symbols, things like that, where are those going to happen? What, what notes are they going to accent and, you know, help, help some people out and put those in the score rather than it kind of being cryptic of where you want that to happen. There's great advice and information here for anyone in the marching arts, whether you have anything to do with the front ensemble or percussion at all. These guys are just great educators. Great information from the Arcadia Music and Arts Symposium shared here on the Marching Roundtable. This podcast is sponsored by Blue House Mallets, found at bluha.us, B-L-U-E-H-A dot U-S. Blue House makes keyboard percussion mallets for students, educators, and performers. The primary performer collection is designed for years of reliable use in the ORF classroom. The concert master collection is perfect for the developing percussionist. And the Contemporary Artist Collection is a set of premier mallets for a complete range of marimba and vibraphone performance. With models for the classroom to the concert hall, the recording studio to the marching field, Blue House builds exceptional tools for musicians to engage their creativity and express their passion. Build your sound in the finest custom mallet build shop on the web at bluha.us. Bluha.us. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Marching Roundtable. This is Tim, and thank you so much for listening. I am, as I have been lately, live at the Arcadia Music and Art Symposium um, in Arcadia, California. Wow, this table sitting in front of me. I can't. I'm so excited about who's here. So I'll just go around the table. Jim Casella, how are you, sir? Doing well, thanks. Thanks for being here. Sitting next to him, Sean Vega. Sean, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Brian Dinkle, how are you? Doing great. Glad to be here. Yeah. Kevin Shaw. Hey, Tim. And Matt Jordan. How's it going? So, like, these are big, 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 big names. So they don't mess around here at the Arcadia Symposium. <laughs> like, like this is, I'm so excited to be, to just heard, we just did, you guys just did a panel discussion, which I sat in on and really, really enjoyed. We're talking about composing and arranging for front ensemble. So we're going to just sort of give you a snippet of that. If you're listening to this, you should be here because you really, you missed it. But you're going to get a sample of what these guys have to offer. Um, so... You guys are really famous. Everybody knows who you are. But just briefly, start with you, Jim. Sort of 
what you're doing and how people would know you, groups you work with, that kind of thing. Just um, yeah, I'm I'm probably best known for the the work I did with uh, Santa Clara Vanguard. Uh, 90, 1996 was my first year writing there. I went up to 2004, and then I um, took a year off. Went to the Cavaliers in 2006, and uh, worked there till 2009. And I have been drum corps free since then, actually. <laughs> right, but still, <clears throat> of course. Working in the music field. Yeah, know, yeah. Writing. I actually uh, do a lot of writing still, uh, commissions for concert percussion ensembles. Um, I operate Tap Space. That's kind of like my main gig these days. It's just kind of a full-time gig running a little publishing company and um, uh, also develop virtual drumline and still support virtual drumline and um, spend a lot of my time answering questions about virtual drumline. <laughs> yeah, great, great, great stuff. So, Sean, I'm going to skip you because you were just on a recent podcast. Yeah, everybody, that's fine with me. Everybody will know who you are from RCC, of course. Okay, so, Brian, about yourself. Um, well, currently, um, I am the front ensemble coordinator and caption head and arranger of the Blue Doubles front ensemble. And um, I also do a lot of the sound design um, for the core. Um, on the educational side, I'm the front ensemble manager at Riverside City College with Jim Wonderlich. And uh, I'm the director of percussion at Woodbridge High School in Irvine, California. Fantastic. Kevin? Uh, I write uh, for Ensemble for and wins for Arcadia High School, and I also write the for Ensemble for Broken City Percussion, and currently uh, I am the creative director for the Blue Knights, and I also work on the music with Mike Jackson and uh, Jay Bocook. Very cool. All right. And then uh, Matt. Yeah, so uh, currently I'm the front ensemble arranger for Music City's Mystique in the WGI realm, uh, as well as Spirit of Atlanta and DCI. I um, also do some work uh, not on the arranging side with the, the Bluecoats. Um, historically, I, I've done arranging for Phantom Regiment, um, as well as some work with uh, Carolina Crown as well. Yeah, so if you're listening to this conversation, there is something here, no matter what part of the marching arts you're involved in, you need to hear what they have to say. So I want to start out by talking about Things that you, lessons you learned early on that maybe you can help somebody that's starting out as a, as a front ensemble arranger or composer. Uh, what did you learn? What do you know now that you wish you'd known then? Or what lessons did you learn then that you want to tell somebody, warn somebody off about? Who wants to start? Anybody? I'll start. Um, I, I think uh, there's not a lot of classes you can take in music school for arranging for the front ensemble. Right. Or marching band in general, I think you have to learn by just doing it. Um, and I think the easiest way to do that is to listen to people that you admire, study the resources you can. But um, at the end of the day, you have to dive in and start just doing it and getting your hands dirty and making mistakes. I think that's that's a topic that came up a lot in our discussion earlier. Was just like our early attempts at trying to do this this weird thing that we do, and you know, a lot of times kind of falling flat and then if you're aware you can actually learn from those things and uh try not to make those mistakes on the next go around yeah great advice so just sort of go for it be bold be willing to make mistakes yeah yeah great brian yeah i, I think for me um in the early stages of my career um i was that annoying kid in the ensemble who would ask every question you know whenever my <laughs> instructors or staff was at the mixer messing with things i'd be like what's that knob why'd you do that uh, what did you hear that made you think that? And they'd be like, okay, go away. You're annoying me. But but then I would stand 10 feet away and just watch them and, and ask questions later or just try to figure out the reason behind. So, you know, I was lucky to have a lot of instructional resources. Um, but also, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to live in this community in Southern California where we are all a resource for each other. And I know that when I was first starting out, 
I had guys like Steve Ridley, Jim Wunderlich, and then later on like Tony Nunez and Kevin Shaw and some of the other people kind of in my generation um, doing a lot of the same things I was. And, you know, I think one of the cool things about the Southern California scene is there's just a really open flow of information and no one has qualms about answering questions from each other, even if we're giving away kind of industry secrets and things like that, too. Um, you know, and, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, um, but I think another huge resource for me starting out, you know, like, like Jim said, none of this is taught in school. And it was a long time before my, my practical knowledge I gained from this activity versus my academic knowledge gained from the classroom started to kind of marry. So for me, like little resources like Methods of Movement or the Upfront book that Jim Ancona and Jim Casella put together for Tapspace in 2004, I believe it was, was just a huge influence and a huge inspiration to me. Thank you for the plug. Yeah, that happens as a resource um, at the beginning stages of my career. So, Jim, up front, where do they get it? Tapspace.com. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody needs to have that book. Absolutely. Yeah. So I like that you're talking about don't be afraid to ask questions. And there are people near you, wherever you are, mm -hmm. who will help you if you ask, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So don't be afraid to ask. Either one of you guys? Oh, sure. Um, Kevin? <clears throat> actually, Brian kind of stole some of my answer, which is uh, <laughs> being in Southern California and being lucky to be in this environment where we were – we got to write for a lot of groups. So, you know, we got to, you know, early on in my career, it's like you, you get an opportunity to fail like six times a year, you know, and, and it's that, like, you know, that, that ability to just get stuff out there and learn from your mistakes. Um, it's amplified or in, it's on an exponential scale out here when, when you're starting out and you're doing a ton of gigs. And so I was really fortunate to have, a, you know, a lot of opportunities to like just try things and, and then, being in the close knit community with my peers and and other people that I look up to like Jim Wonderlick who, who you know like was a huge influence on me um growing and same thing with Tony and and Brian as well it's like getting a chance to um pick everybody's brains on the multiple projects that you're working on early on it was like now that I think back it's like that is a priceless opportunity um but then Things like the symposium didn't exist back then, you know, and the ability to ask questions and YouTube and and those kind of resources. I mean, there were resources, but it wasn't as saturated as, as now. So I wonder if maybe some of the problems now is just oversaturation. It's mm -hmm. like, where do you even look? Mm -hmm. Whereas maybe 10 years ago is like anything you got your hands on that was like super informative. And, you know, so I think um, that's the biggest thing. And, and even learning a new skill, like not being afraid of knowing nothing about it knowing that we have the ability to if you just keep picking away at it you you know things will stick and you'll learn little things at a time but th there's only one surefire path which is to just do it like just keep picking away at it yeah i like that yeah yeah, so um, one of the things that really helped me when I was getting started, um, because as Kevin mentions, I mean, the lack of, lack of resources at that time, um, I mean, there really wasn't much out there. So, I mean, I was out probably one of the uh, single people out in the drum corps pit lots um, with a mini disc recorder, uh, you know, back when I was a younger student, you know, recording Cavaliers, recording cadets uh, back when Neil Larrabee was there. I mean, you know, just 
recording really good pits and and I would take them home and I would transcribe them and try to get as much as I could out of that um and you know I ended up marching cavaliers uh, in 2003 and 2004 when Eric Johnson was was the arranger um one of the benefits is that I could watch him work uh, you know he wasn't one of those that would sit at a computer to write at that time um, um at least for for rewrites and things like that so I could actually see his creative process happen on the fly and be able to, to truly start to um you know break apart not only what the music ended up being but how he got to that point and that was really helpful um and then similarly um you know i'm gonna do another plug for up front um you know because you know jim was a, a, a big influence of mine as well um musically and to have a, a book that really truly broke out on the arranging side you know concepts and and methods that how that happened um you know it really allowed me to take some of those influences from eric that i saw live and then some of the other influences that were written down um and kind of mix those together a little bit um in my earlier stages of arranging and i'd say you know the first few years of of me arranging for high schools and things when i was really young i mean i could probably tell you on a phrase by phrase basis who influenced that phrase you know um and and I think that being imitative, you know, in your early stages of your career is, is necessary to to finding your own voice, you know. Uh, and then as, as you you start to have your own creative ideas and your own kind of thoughts, it really helps develop your again your own voice. Yes, yeah, so you're doing a lot of listening and studying of groups you like, and then you're going for it and trying it. And the other thing I was thinking of is, you know, you don't get your first job writing for the Blue Devils. You're writing for some, you know, usually some very small school that's struggling, whatever. So you can't really do too much damage. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, isn't that that's sort of a blessing? Yeah. Like, Sean, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you want to weigh in on yeah, this? Yeah, you know, I, we talked, we've talked about this on a podcast before that I think it's the pageantry arts are really unique in that, as Kevin mentioned, you can fail six times a year. And, you know, I, I'm a true believer in the fact that, you know, the, that the pain of failure plus some reflection equals progress. I mean, that's how you learn. Um, whereas maybe outside of pageantry, that's, you know, you're, you fail miserably at a film score, you're going to be blacklisted from, from the <laughs> entertainment world. So um, it, it does give you a very unique opportunity to, to progress, to learn um, that, again, isn't necessarily afforded to you outside of pageantry. Yeah, these are great point. advice. Any, anything else you may want to add on this topic? I, I would say that, I mean, it, it sounds funny that this failure, right, that, that word, but and it's, there's a stigma to it. And it, the failure doesn't, it's not indicative of intent. Right, it's not indicative of uh, apathy. That that word is just really like you know the everyone looks at that and um, they associate fear with that word, and that's the one, that's what you have to be okay with, like just doing it and not worried about failing, right? Not and but not failing because you were apathetic or or didn't put in the work to try to figure <laughs> out something, but as opposed to just failing because you went for it, you know. So I want to make sure that. And it's time to go to class. <laughs> I think the school bells are still going off. I thought you were being censored. <laughs> Watch your language, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to tell everyone listening what he just said. <laughs> no, that's great. I love that. And you know what? You, you, know, you can't really kill a band show with your front ensemble book. You know what I mean? You just learn lessons that you make your next year's book better. You know what I mean? Like, have, have there ever really been shows destroyed by the front ensemble writing? Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay. I think I've judged a few I've judged some. <laughs> if you're putting a sub drop into your show right now, you are ruining your... <laughs> okay, I stand corrected. Okay, all right, all right. Well, I was, I was trying to be like the voice of sunshine here, but forget it. <laughs> okay. So, show somebody your writing and get their opinion before you hand it out. Okay, moving on. I really love that in the session you guys just did, you also talked about... As for, as for ensemble writers, advice for battery writers 
to help you do a better job? Because it's really a collaboration, no doubt, right? So we t you guys had all shared things like, I wish the battery writers would know this or tell me this or do this to help me do a better job, and then vice versa, things you can tell. So let's talk about that. Who wants to start something that you wish that um, you know battery writers knew? Matt, you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, just like front ensemble rangers have to have a clear vision of what the rest of the ensemble is doing, I think the battery rangers need to do that same thing. Um, one of the things I see from younger battery rangers is kind of not paying attention to what the big picture is, um, whether it be the full picture musically with the full band or core, um, or what the front ensemble is going to be doing. If, for example, a battery ranger writes first, um, sometimes can kind of uh, step on toes that aren't even there yet um, of, of the front ensemble, because you really have to have a vision of, um, you know, where if it's going to be big impacts, for example, in the front ensemble, where are those impacts going to be? If you want to have little accents patterns with your splash symbols, you know, accessory symbols, things like that. Where are those going to happen? What what notes are they going to accent? And, you know, help help some people out and put those in the score rather than it kind of being cryptic of where you want that to happen. You know, uh, more information is always better than less information. Um, and, and, and I think that that really just truly informs all the decisions. Um, and say, same on the on the front ensemble end, right, uh, with battery people. If your front ensemble is writing first and you have a, a specific idea that you want to hear in the battery, you know, there's no reason you shouldn't put that in there if it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, great. Kevin? Um, I think, to piggyback on what Matt was saying, like the, the phrase, um, I don't prescribe to the phrase of stay in your own lane. And I think that the more that you can blur the lines between what your specific role is and what the battery arranger specific role is and, and be able to collaborate, like that for me, over the years, that's where the most magic has happened is when, you know, the battery arranger will tell me, like, you know, they'll just, like, for example, Tony will, like, just write, an auxiliary stave with the battery parts that show where he's thinking um, some of the you know impact it should be, and then uh, vice versa. When I'm writing uh, the front ensemble parts, that I'll kind of go in and sketch in some battery ideas. Like here's what I was thinking. Um, uh, here's some of the ideas. I know Sean talked about this as well, but like he, you know, like giving blank space to the battery guys is one thing, but then like giving them some kind of information in the blank space is helpful. And then I think the same way for us is having any sort of visual cues or ideas or hand, uh, hand speed ideas, um, foot speed, footfall, time signature things, those kind of information um, will, will definitely help what we do. Yeah. Um, I think, I think another thing that's really helpful for me as a front ensemble ranger is just getting a lot of feedback and input from the battery rangers about their thoughts. A lot of the time, you know, with what we do, it's, it's a partnership and it's a collaboration. And there's ideas that are exchanged back and forth multiple times before it ever sees the general public, before it even reaches your students' hands sometimes. So sometimes that first layer of um, feedback is really valuable in the process. And sometimes it's it's not what you want to hear. Sometimes it's brutally honest and there's times where like, you know, I'll get some feedback from someone. They'll just be like, I hate that start over, you know, and, and it's tough, but sometimes that has been an impetus for some of the work I've been most proud of. And sometimes, um, at the end of the day, you want it to be a vision that you're both feel strongly about. And, um, you know, sometimes for me, something that's helpful is when I'm writing a phrase or working with the battery ranger is is um, just giving them a harmonic sketch and letting them think melodically first, you know, and because a lot of the time with the indoor percussion, you know, sometimes the battery is truly used as a melodic voice and melodic um, influence. And sometimes the front ensemble is doing more harmonic progressions and then melodies are built around what the battery ends up being doing, you know, deciding to do. So having that kind of input and feedback and also having them intimately involved in decision making part of the process, like Kevin said, is a huge um factor in, I think, a, a 
a product that feels very cohesive at the end of the day. Go ahead, Jim. I, I think I, I come at it from a, a slightly different perspective because I, um, when I was really heavily doing this stuff, I, I was never just functioning as the pit arranger only. Um, I usually was doing the pit and the battery stuff until um, my last couple of years. I was primarily writing the battery stuff, and then Eric Johnson was doing the pit book. And um, the only way I think I knew how to do that uh, and collaborate with another person and, and kind of figure out how to do that was to write some of those cues in. And I would, um, so I would sketch in little parts that he would later orchestrate out. And, um, that, that to me made sense. It's, it felt like we were truly collaborating that way and trading ideas back and forth. Whereas I have had that experience of getting a, like a brass score from, from the wind arranger where it's like they write their part and then there's eight or 12 bars of just blank space. And it's like, Oh, that's where the percussion guy's going to just do some percussiony kind of stuff. <laughs> fill it in. And it, it sort of made, you know, it makes it feel like, uh, I don't know, like just do something cool there and make it, make it work. And, and it, it makes it feel like more of a commodity rather than an actual collaboration. And, and like, we're trying to create this thing together and, and, and have it hopefully come out as, as one, true vision um so it doesn't sound like three separate people were, were were all working on it at the same time so i guess that would be my advice if you're if you're writing um specifically battery stuff don't be afraid to get in there and write some of your own ideas into the the pit staves and vice versa and like get get dirty with each other and, and make sure that it's it's actually you know you're you're actually kind of crossing streams a little bit and um yeah, yeah. sorry i'm using kind of weird language here <laughs> but i think you know like it's all percussion and it's like you don't have to just write battery you don't just have to write front ensemble stuff it's all it's one big percussion ensemble that's the way i've always seen it it just we happen to be in a marching activity it's still percussion ensemble and i think the the more we can make uh, our collective voices cohesive and um holistic the i think the the better it's going to play to the audience's perspective yeah, that's such great advice. I, I know as a wind arranger, I will put like really sad little mallet cues in, or even write some little great, drum break things. But they always like it, and 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 yeah. yeah. And when I'm, I'm working with these great guys, so like they write these fantastic things, and I, they, they turn it into great stuff. So thank yeah, God, because I can't can do it. Can we give exactly advice for wind arrangers? Sure, <laughs> they're exactly listening too. Exactly what Tim said. Let's let's not do thirty two bars of blank. And yeah. go from one key to another key. Like, give some idea <laughs> of how it fits into the context. Yeah. That's great. Get some idea how it fits into the context of what's going on, right? Yeah. yeah. And you even talked about, Kevin, you talked about the visual now. We have to, that's so important that you, you need those, that information too. Well, right? I, I think that that now, what this activity has become, I mean, it's, that is a lot of times the primary concern, you know, because it's just so many moving parts, literally, mm. to, to <laughs> get functioning that, like, you know, changing the music is relatively easy to changing the drill, right? Like, or like if some, if, mm -hmm. if the staging in its organic nature has gotten to a point where, you know, you can't just like make a previous idea work and you have to call an audible, calling an audible visually is way harder than it is musically. So like we have to be super aware and open of that for that. And that's been something that, you know, over the last decades, like I've been painfully learning that lesson that now it's like you that's the first 
and primary concern when I'm writing music. Obviously, we want it to sound great. We want it to fulfill the vision in terms of the theme, the show, and, and our creative outlet. But in terms of logistics and making the show function and, and be, uh, um, you know, something that is going to compete at a high level, like the, the visual is the first and, and, and the biggest uh, um, uh, thing that we're serving. Yeah, and, and I think that's what you find now is that's the majority of the times that music has to change. It's because of that, because of visual needs, because of staging, because the environment, certain music, it just, it can't work that way or that certain voices won't be able to play the way it was staged. And so it has to kind of work in that way. And I, 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 that's what it's become the majority of the time. It's not necessarily because the music isn't good um, or that any one person in that, in that, in, in the, in the group that is designing doesn't necessarily like it. It's, doesn't serve the actual overall purpose once things again are organically put on the field or the floor it we need to make edits to make that work you know and sometimes there's a stigma there's this funny like oh well you know the the vis got us to a point where the sound designer has to come and save the day and it's like that's what sound design is for it's like well <clears throat> maybe but i find it like a point of pride like when when there is a tricky problem or it's like i don't know how to get from this key to that key or i don't know how to get from this tempo to that tempo i don't know how to get from this where we ended the battery here and the guard like and we have to fix that as as generally as front ensemble types like that's exciting like i feel like a, a lot of the the coolest things that i've ever done is like to macgyver that moment so mm. that it's like wow that sounds really cool and it did the it fixed the problem yeah, I think one of my uh, biggest changes this year is I, I took over as the doing a lot of the sound design at the Blue Devils this year. And that's very much an organization where the visual design dictates every, you know, not every, but a lot of the musical choices. And I had to learn really early on in the process not to get too married to any ideas that I have because every time they stage things, it's a very collaborative process watching them stage. And I never knew as a front ensemble arranger and sound designer that I would spend so much time watching visual rehearsals and watching visual blocks and talking to the color guard designers. And, you know, just these last two days, the core was in Santa Barbara rehearsing and I was sitting in the press box with my computer watching visual design or watching them move things around and reorchestrate things visually and doing sound design based on that. And, you know, that's been a huge, um, step and you know it's made me think a lot differently holistically about what i'm doing from a scoring perspective and learning how to just disengage and not get too caught up in the nuts and bolts of things and zoom out and kind of think about the big picture or how you can affect people on the greater rather than just the the marimba dorks like me who are going to look for the <laughs> cool permutations and fast little licks and things like that so you know it's it's really been eye-opening learning how um a visual person thinks of the music and and how sometimes when you do sound design it's like well i don't want to do a click track underneath that because i don't want you to think of time the way i'm thinking of it right now and i don't want to trap you or lock you into those things which i think it's got to be kind of exciting though right i mean it's it's almost like film scoring i mean you're yep. watching like an edited version of the film and now you're trying to fit music on top of what it is you're seeing. I mean, that's got to be kind of fun. Like, it feels like almost yeah, very exactly cool. like what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I'd say in the past, I mean, really most people were pretty much doing film scoring but without watching the movie. You know, and I think that now I think there's truly, <laughs> you know, a, a movement that most front ensemble rangers are relatively familiar with the visual ideas and know what's happening on the field and where everybody is. Because you kind of have to in order to, again, for sound design especially, but I mean, even from the, from a ranging perspective, you know, I might not write something, um, you know, if the battery's in a certain position on the field, I might not write the same lick that I would if they were in a better position. I mean, so it's going to inform my writing choice 
choices to have a good idea of what the visual is doing, um, especially in WGI. I mean, you know, you know, th there might be moments where the pit can't, you know, maybe have as much power as you need if the battery is right up in the pit, you know, or, or, you know, vice versa. There's, there's just different situations where you might write differently knowing what is happening with the visual. Yeah, I spend a lot of time with clients trying to explain to them how they need to collaborate better. And a lot of times everybody's in programs that are still building and trying to figure themselves out. I mean, we're talking about you guys are working at the elite level, but you guys know you work with other groups where their staff is trying to figure out how to work together. So we're talking about not only collaborating battery to front ensemble, but also to wins, also now to visual, to concept. Everybody has to be on that page early on. A lot of people don't know that, I think. So... That doesn't lead yeah, us well, to a comment. I, I think, I'm just... <laughs> I mean, this was already somewhat stated that it is for everyone. They have to realize that first and foremost, their responsibility is to the whole, yeah. not to their own individual part within the whole. And if everybody's thinking that way and, and everyone leaves sort of ego out of the equation, it, it allows everybody to coexist with the sole purpose, the sole intent, the shared vision of being. What is the entire package that we're putting on the floor of the field? Yeah. Um, if you have that in mind, I think it's much easier to let go of phrases that you've fallen in love with because we've all dealt with that. Like, hey, mm -hmm. I just, man, I love that that musical phrase, but it's got to go because it just doesn't serve the greater good. So I think that is, I think, the, the big unifying message is learning how to communicate in a group where, the, again, the point is the overall goal of the entire production. You know, what's yeah. interesting is I feel like most points of conflict in terms of the creative collaboration feel like I, I think people tend to feel like they're the thing that they did isn't being accounted for by the person that they're having a conflict with. And but in that feeling, they're not they're thinking about their own thing and they're, you know, so if everyone kind of like what you said, just if everyone disregarded what they wrote as a first step and just focused on what the other person is asking for that I think would cyclone into a much more better collaboration. Yeah, it sounds like what you're describing is <clears throat> it's trust. You have to trust the people that you're mm -hmm. working with and, and accept the fact that maybe your cool idea isn't going to be the most important thing at any one given point. And, and they do want you to shine. Like they, it's not like sure. they, they want you to not be good. Everyone wants each other to be good. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. I think there's, there's certain times too, when, we in a design process, you know, there's four or five, maybe more people in a design team that, you know, you feel like you bring five good ideas to the table and you're frustrated when most of those ideas don't get in there. But if there's five people on the design team, you know, one out of five is exactly the you know ratio of you getting the percentage of things and that you, you know, that, that everyone gets kind of the equal share. Um, so it's just understanding that those ideas that you don't get in the show or, you know, have to be taking a backseat, that's just necessary as part of a collaborative team. You know, Kevin, we did a podcast after one of those Blue Knight shows that I fell in love with, and we, we the teams with Jay Bocook was there, and we yeah. were talking about that, and I remember Jay saying that one of the things he loved so much about the, the way the team was working together was that nobody was fighting for their stuff, but everybody understood how it was serving the greater good. Yeah. You know, and I, I just remember that from that podcast. Everybody check that out, marchingroundtable.com. It's a really good podcast, but you can search for Kevin Shaw and you'll find it. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Like yeah. we had that conversation. Well, I think that's, that's, I'm in a unique position where I get to work with someone like Jay, who's just a consummate professional master right. at, right. at his craft. And he is so egoless and he like, he'll write. And, and then I was like, Jay, what do you think about this idea? Oh, I love it. Let's try it. You know what I mean? It's just like this constant support. 
and it's not even like it, it's a sincere support and mm-hmm. it's a sincere effort to let someone like have an idea and change what you're doing that is like unheard of like to, you know what I mean like here I am like okay I, I, I do the marimba parts Jay can I can I mess with this <laughs> trumpet thing and it's, dude go for it and it's yeah. like the, having that relationship with somebody is priceless and like I mean especially for someone in my position I mean it's it's one of those things that if you can create that relationship with someone else like if you're in a position to have someone that you're working with that is maybe um, not at your level or perceived level and you, you let them have a little bit of ownership and see what they can do with that that relationship and bond i mean you will that is you're attempting to grow someone that that kind of um you know what i'm saying like that ability to to foster or nurture that is yeah, yeah. is amazing that's an important point i think that you're bringing up here is the the idea of chemistry with the people that you're working with um i think some of my most rewarding experiences in drum corps were where we had a really strong chemistry. We were, this was like back in the days when the core had to move in. The like drumline would move in in January to be there for the entire spring season. Like you know, indoor drumline wasn't wasn't really a, a thing yet back then. Completely different era. But we'd rehearse like three or four times a week, and you know, I'd go out for beers with the drill designer and the color color guard people and, and and I would go see dance concerts and we go see movies together. We were like friends, we were buddies, we were hanging out and we were talking about ideas all the time and um you know, granted it's a it's a very different time nowadays. A lot of times we're in different parts of the country, but I think the more interaction, the more communication, the more camaraderie that you can develop in in those working relationships um the more that personality comes out in in your work and that that trust starts to develop because the kind of free agent mentality can can I fear sometimes blossom into like, I'm just going to crank this out, send it in and then forget about it. And that's like, I think people can sense that when you've mailed it in. It's, um, there's got, I think it has to come from a deeper place. And, um, I think chemistry can really help foster that. Yeah. And I tell you, um, I talked to these, the advantage on the podcast of talking to these design teams from all these different groups. And usually after they've had great success, but they will all be like, you can tell when somebody's group's been together a long time. You know, like the the crown team will go, yeah, we we started to gel around this time, and now they've been riding together for a really long time. And um, you know, those t- teams change and things as th- as times go. But if you can build your team and build that trust, yeah, absolutely. Also, wanted to mention, um, I love Brian that you were talking about you know the, what's best for the show. We we all been sort of talking about that. It reminded me, I, I just finished working on a course with Scott Chandler of the Blue Devils. Um, it, you can find that at marchingartseducation.com. Scott Chandler, it's a great course, but he. Over and over and over and over, he keeps saying it's all about the show. It's all about the show. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's, it's all about the show. I don't know if you've even actually heard him say that. Oh, I yeah. wonder if you've heard him say that. Like, <laughs> he says it so many times, but his whole thing is it doesn't matter. It's not my ego. It's not your brass part. It's not your guard toss. It's all about the show. Did, I mean, you want to speak to that at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's been one of my big learning um, curves this year is is being on that side is how much time i spend talking to scott chandler about the show Hmm. you know and when we're doing sound design it's not just like okay what do i think is going to sound cool in the space it's more like what do you hear in this space going with what you conceptualize in the overall because you know that's that's been an interesting part of the process of the blue devils is the whole whole team there has been working together for decades you know scott chandler and dave glide and you know scott johnson john meehan they've all been very established in their roles and their positions and they've been working together they've had a really good working flow for a long time 
time. So stepping into that is, is a little bit intimidating. So one thing it's for, really forced me to do is get out of my comfort zone and just disengage from what I want and what I do and what my first instincts are and to just ask questions and, and just sit next to them and rehearse. Sometimes I'll just sit next to Jay Murphy and, you know, drink my Mountain Dew with him and, <laughs> and just try to pick his brain about why he orchestrated things visually a certain way or why Scott, you know, made a decision with, with his color palette versus, you know, like, you know, and his use of color is completely different than the way I would think of using it and things like that too. And, um, you know, and, and just even just the way the show comes together there is it's not like, it's not like the transitions are, are all necessarily planned out. Sometimes they just get there and they throw all the ideas in the pool together and you see what works and you see what, what resonates with those people. And that's been very different for me because I, I grew up wanting to sit there in my laboratory and in the shadows and work on sounds and then bring it to the rehearsal field and have it be a fully presented idea. But I've had to just learn to sit on the, uh, sometimes I just have to sit on the turf with my laptop and just take it all in and soak it all in and ask questions and, and look at things outside of my own bubble. Yeah, it's amazing. In that course, he and Jay Murphy talk about that. They're like, we, we know we want to get here. Now let's figure out how to get here. Mm -hmm. Like that's a, such a different process than I think a lot of people work. Um, I also want to say, listening to the previous panel discussion you guys had and then listening to you talk here, I sort of feel like you guys are, are you aware that you kind of have superpowers in the world of marching shows? Because yes. you, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, like you guys are the most prepared to help and fix. Don't you think? Like, you know, to solve a problem or get really nimble and let's add this sound, let's put this transition. Do you guys, I feel like you guys are like the ones most equipped. You know, I'm glad it feels that way because <laughs> it doesn't to me. And, really? And it's funny because, you know, they'll, you know, I'll watch it in rehearsal where they'll be like, okay, let's, you know, how about you take two steps over? Okay, that's your spot now. Or just, you know, change that, put that on the left hand in the snare drums or the trumpet, you know, let's revoice this, take the leads up a third. You know what I mean? For me, I'm like, okay, hold on. I got to get out my computer. Let me get my hard drive out. <laughs> I need a couple hours. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but on that, as, as a non-fun ensemble guy, um, what I think is unique about that is that it, so limited in other you know, in the in the wind book and in, right. in the battery book, you're limited in what it is you can do. I mean, there's very defined sounds where it's almost limitless, especially now with technology being what it is. Um, I think that's what's great about the the adaptability of what it is you can do, create the subtlety, the magnitude. I mean, it's pretty spectacular. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like we were adding something into our show this past week, like three days ago, and they were like, you know, we want to put in some finger snaps right here. Could you do that? And I was, they were like, do you have some finger snaps on your computer? I'm like, I. I need to sit there and take five and stack them together and put reverb on it and balance them and put effects on it. And then, and then I need to make sure that it sounds right out of, you know, it's like, for me, it's like, you know, I, I have this comfort zone attached to things and having to do things on this pace in that time. It's like, well, you, we got 20 minutes, you know what I mean? Can we get it in by the run through? And it's like, okay, let's make it happen. The best is it's like, oh, we need to mic that soloist. Can we do it in ensemble? You know? Like, oh, 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 we didn't really get to it. Oh, we'll do it in the water break before the run. And then we do the run. It's like, Kevin, what, what what I was like, dude. Yeah, how come that didn't sound right? <laughs> so I mean the the more that like those kind of things, like if you're you know, if you're the kind of person that has to deal with the miking and, and getting something ready for ensemble, like try to like, you know, talk to your brass people and steal soloists beforehand and do it in pit block. You know, that's that's what what we do and it actually like it it lets you get the pressure of doing all the things that Brian described in a setting where, you know, 150 people aren't standing there looking at you, like Wait. getting sunburned. <laughs> yeah, that is Waiting. the worst feeling in the entire world. So number one, don't let don't let your ensemble put you in that position. Number one, and then number two, don't put your guy in that position or girl. 
Yeah, I, it's funny because as you guys are saying that, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, you guys can fix it. I think that I'm like, I'm part of the problem. I'm like, you can, you can fix it. You got 10 minutes. Like, <laughs> this is one I'm of totally those that guy. parallels to film scoring that seems to keep coming up too. Yeah. Because like by the time the film composer gets to do uh, their work, uh, you know, the, the movie is done. It's, it's cut together. The edit is what it is. The dialogue, the acting, everything is what it is. And if it's, you know, not great dialogue or if the acting wasn't, you know, great in a particular scene they're going to start relying more heavily on the music right, to hopefully right. fix that emotional right. moment. And, um, yeah, it, it, there is sometimes, I think, some expectation that the music is going to fix things that maybe aren't even fixable. <laughs> oh. Yeah, but I've been, I've, I've been distracted by cool front ensemble things at Bad Transitions before. So you, right. I, I, I really do think you guys... No, I'm, I just, <laughs> you guys say, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 do, I, I, I think you guys should feel very empowered. I guess, I guess you do. I don't know. I, I think there's been a really awesome trend over the last five, six years to not treat the sound design element as a third yes. layer, right? It's not right. It's not necessarily the frosting on the cake anymore. It's mm -hmm. definitely, you want to think about what kind of sprinkles you're going to use before you make your base. Hmm. Man, that's a great way to put it. Okay, we're going to stop right there because I can't top <laughs> that close. No, really, you guys are fantastic. Jim, Matt. Kevin, Brian, Sean, guys, thank you so much for doing this with me while you're here at the Arcadia Symposium, which is really awesome. So thanks. Yeah, really appreciate thanks it. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Watch for other podcasts from the Arcadia Music and Arts Symposium, including conversations with some of the biggest names in the marching arts. Find out more about the Arcadia Symposium at arcadiasymposium.com. Keep up with podcasts that are being recorded and find out when they'll be released by following the Marching Roundtable on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And get our bi-weekly newsletter that also has a release schedule included by signing up for a VIP membership at marchingroundtable.com. Imagine having your best season ever. You and your staff could learn directly from Scott Chandler of the Blue Devils, our activity's most successful designer. In the new online course, Scott Chandler Design Advice from Forward March. You can sign up as an individual or sign up your entire staff at one lower cost at marchingartseducation.com. Scott shares over five hours of great ideas, and then we give you practical ways to put these ideas into action with your group right away. Make your staff more effective and your group more successful. marchingartseducation.com. Thanks again to the sponsor of this podcast, Blue House Mallets, found at MalletBuilder.com. When you contact the good folks at Blue House Mallets, tell them you heard about them on the Marching Roundtable podcast. Thanks again to Tony Nunez and everyone at the Arcadia Symposium for having the Marching Roundtable there to do these interviews and watch for more of these podcasts recorded live at the event coming very soon. And, of course, thank you so much for listening. If you're a business that works with band directors, marching bands, color guards, or drum lines, you should consider sponsoring an episode of the Marching Roundtable. Our listeners are the exact audience you're trying to reach, and with thousands of podcast downloads each month, it's a great way to directly reach your target audience. For more information, click on the Sponsorship Opportunities link at marchingroundtable.com or email Tim at tim at marchingroundtable.com. You can grow your business and help support what we're doing here on the podcast. Thanks.